Good morning. I am very happy to be here. Very happy to be right here. I am. I am. And I want to preface this service, as Pastor has in the past. I'm not mad either, okay? So whatever happens from this point forward, just know I love y'all, and I'm not mad, okay? It's always good to say that. I was told that when I come up here, and of course you know this is my family that's telling me this because they're the ones that would say this to me, I should smile. So I'm going to smile a lot. Maybe randomly during the service, I'm going to smile at you folks and just let you know I'm happy, okay? So I'm not the pastor of this church. My name is T.J. Philbrook. I am a member of Grace Christian Center, the Miracle Church. Um, Our pastors are away doing what they need to be doing right now, so I was asked to fill in right here right now, so that's what I'm doing. I'm going to start off the message today on a non-serious note. Does anyone know what you get when you drop a piano down a mine shaft. A flat minor. Thank you. My son gave me that one last night, and it was a music joke. So the musical music department, I know, got it. The rest of you didn't. What I'm actually going to talk about today, it doesn't really have a title, but I'm going to start out with talking about serving in the body of Christ. And what our motivation is for serving in the body of Christ. Uh, I looked up some definitions. I always go to Webster's Dictionary to look up my definitions. I don't go to the Urban Dictionary. I don't go to any other stuff. I go to Webster's to get definitions because a lot of times there's scripture in there. Webster was a Christian. How about that? I looked up the definition to the word serve, to serve, and it's listed as to be a servant, to be of use, to be of use. So if you're going to serve someone, you're of use to them. I like the third definition, though, the best of all of them. It says, to be worthy of reliance or trust. If you're going to serve someone, they have to be able to rely upon you and to be able to trust you. Put that one in your pocket, okay? That's the main one that I want you to get out of this, Uh, to be worthy of reliance or trust. Sometimes the word servant has gotten a negative connotation because it maybe belittle somebody, or at least somebody could think it was a belittling statement, to call oneself a servant. I don't think that's the case at all, if you look at the word servant in the right perspective. Uh, I looked up the word to minister, and I wanted to see how that related to the word serve, because I think everybody here knows that a minister, while a minister may be someone who stands in a pulpit and he preaches a message, to minister to someone is to do what? Is to serve them, right? Or to be worthy of reliance and trust. So someone that can be trusted is someone that can minister. And if you look up the word minister, it means to give aid or service. Use the word service right there. Or to help care for. I can look right here and say that our ministers, our pastors who are up here every week, they do care for us, right? And they do give aid and service to us through the Word of God every single week. Then I went further and I looked up the word servant. I just went ahead and did it. I looked up the word servant. I found a good one there as well. It is a person who is devoted to or guided by something. It didn't say what, but it just said a person that's devoted to or guided by something. So they are a servant to a cause. They're a servant to something that they believe. Paul himself many times called himself a servant. He said he was a bondservant 
to Christ. He was a bondservant to the message that was given to him by Jesus. Now, bondservant, Jill and I had this discussion last night. A bondservant, what he's saying there is he is a free will servant. He is not a servant that must do what he is doing. Because if he doesn't, he will be killed or he will be financially penalized. It's not about that. He is a servant of his own free will to Jesus Christ and to the message that was given to him. He could have walked away at any moment. People don't believe that maybe, but he could have walked away from what he was called to do at any moment. And we wouldn't be reading the epistles of Paul. We'd be reading the epistles of Frank or whoever it was that decided to take on that responsibility. But thank God Paul did because he was the man. He was the man for it. God knew it, chose him, and he did it. This message is about why do we do what we do? Why do we serve others? Do we serve others? Or do we serve ourselves? The first thing I came to start thinking about here was everyone's motivated by something. Okay, Everybody's got a motivation in your life. You get up every morning and you go do something. And you're motivated to do that something for a reason. So motivation is a, this is another definition. I made this one up. I did not look this one up. I made it up. I've never looked up the word uh, motivation, but this is my idea of what it is. Motivation is a commitment to an idea, a plan, a possession, a person, money. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's a commitment to something. And you're motivated by that commitment to that, whatever it is. These things influence what we do and what we are willing to do. Motivation is a powerful thing. I started thinking about examples of what motivates certain people. Of course, I think about people close to me, first and foremost. So I started thinking about children. I'm an authority on children. I don't know if you'll know that or not. I've got four. They're all in here right now. I won't point at them. I don't want to bring them any you know, embarrassment or anything like that. I want them to raise their hand. Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah, he's proud that he's my child. Oh, so is he. The other two aren't. They're, not, they're just keeping their hands up. There they go. So anyway... Children can be motivated by a desire for the next thing, right? When I was a kid, I was that way. I didn't, have, I didn't think a whole lot about my future, what I was planning on doing with life. I was motivated by the next thing, the next toy I was going to get, the next big thing I was going to do. You know, was I going to Carowinds? What was I going to be doing immediately? That's what I thought about. I was motivated by that. I've noticed with my children specifically, that nothing brings out a work ethic in a child or their math skills like wanting something. How many times have we had our kids come up to us, and anybody here that's got kids, I'm sure you've experienced this, they'll come up to you and they'll start, hey, Dad, there's this new thing. All right, let's say it's Legos in our house, okay? There's this new Lego. I really want it. And they'll bring you a picture of it. You know, they got the, they've gone online. They've looked it up. They've found like seven different resources to purchase it. They know exactly what it costs at all of them. So they know the cheapest place they can get it. And they show it to you. They want you to get enamored with it as well. Look at that. Look, at, look it's got that gun. It's got this. It's got, I mean, they are absolutely focused on that. And then they start talking to you about two things. Um, if I have this much money... And then say, if Joshua has this much money, and we combine our money, and then I know I owe mom this, and I've, I've already got $8, and, t- and they start doing all this stuff, and I'm like, whoa, I'm about to need my calculator to start calculating all this stuff. But man, they're doing some serious math in their head. 
And they're coming up to this number that they need to arrive at, and now their next question is, how do I get there? How do I get to that number, Dad? You got any jobs I can do? Work ethic comes out. I figure if I, if I vacuum out uh, your car and if I wash your truck and if I, do the, you know, if I mow the lawn, and then, what do you got that pays $20? What do you have that I paid me $20? <laughs> like, whoa, they're trying to establish how much I'm going to... And they don't want, you know, they don't always want the task to be comparable to the pay. It's like, so if, if I fold the laundry, can I get $20? I mean, no, I mean, I'm, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but you understand. They're motivated by their desire and their want for that. Now, if you went and bought it for them immediately, just gave it to them, what's their motivation then? Put that thing together. That is all they care about. And it's getting away from you, put that thing together. Adults are the same. They're no different than a kid. They just have bigger toys that cost a lot more money, and they're willing to take some bigger risks to get it. Now, when you're an adult, most of the time, you should be responsible for getting these things for yourself. And you shouldn't be going to your mom and dad and asking them to finance this stuff for you. You can see some people get out of control with things like this when they become an adult and they don't know when to, they're not a kid anymore and they don't stop spending on goofy stuff. And problems start to happen. So I started thinking about those two things in combination. I started thinking about a kid, a kid that's unguided when they're, a child, and they tend towards selfishness, as an example. If they are selfish as, they're, as a child, and they're never taught how to not be selfish, well, when they get older, they're going to be a, an adult selfish person. They're just going to be magnifying on a larger scale that same thing that they were as a kid. It's the same thing with a misbehaving child. You have a child that misbehaves, and you don't correct them as they're growing up, when they become a teenager, when they become a 25-year-old, whatever it is, they're going to misbehave as an adult. And that serious problem start happening then, right? So selfishness may not be overtly observable. It may not be an equality that you can just see, particularly in an adult. You can see it in a kid. Most of the time in a kid, selfishness is on full display, all right? You've seen two kids play. You've seen one kid's got the toy, the one the other kid wants. Well, that kid will walk over and just go, yank it out of their hand, mine, and they'll walk over and sit down with it. How many of you as an adult would dare do that to somebody else? You're not going to do that. Your selfishness can be much more disguised, much more masked, but it's still there, and it's still selfish. It's just manifesting itself in a way that tries to give you a little bit better um, presentation to people. You don't want to look bad, so your selfishness is something you don't present. It may not be overtly observable. I said we as adults have usually honed the craft of being selfish to such a degree that we can move along unnoticed and be just as selfish as we want to. Um, sometimes we don't even realize it. We're getting so good at it, it's such a normal part of our life, we don't even get it. What kind of examples are there for that? We're in the body of Christ. And I believe that one of the greatest things that we can do is serve someone else in the body of Christ. Do something for them. And I don't mean go take them dinner, even though it might be take them dinner. My wife does that all the time. She believes in providing meals for people at random almost. But 
Most of the time, it's the people that need them. It's true. I mean, we've provided a bunch of meals for people. And she'll just, it's great. I love that she does that. But there's all kinds of situations that come up or arise where people will say, can you be here and help me do this at a certain time because I really need help doing this? And we have a tendency in the world that we're in and the busyness that we're in to say, I've got something else to do right now. Sorry, I wish I could help you. Does that seem like we're being selfish? No, it seems like we had something else to do, did we? Well, when it starts happening over and over and over and over again, there's a men's work day. I can't be there. i got to be out of town. All right? There's another men's work day. There's been four this month. This weird month. We had four this month. You know, there was a storm every week, and we had to go out and pick stuff up. I couldn't be at any of them. I'm sorry. I had to do this that day, and I just couldn't be there. That's what I'm talking about. Could you really not be there, or were you, you didn't want to be there because you were protecting your time. Your time was your time, and it wasn't somebody else's time, and you weren't willing to give it to them. Really? I'm not pointing at anybody here. I've done that. I have absolutely been very protective of my time before, and a lot of times we'll, we'll use family as an excuse. Yeah, my kids have this thing, and I, I, I'm going I'm to you know, take my kids that thing. Really? Because you have a family right here that has a thing that they need you to help them do. And that thing was planned before that thing for your kids came up. If your kids even actually have a thing. Right? Selfishness in an adult, it's hard to see it. But it's there. We all have it to some degree. question is, how much control do you have? It's kind of like your tongue. How much control you got over your tongue? The Bible says it's an unruly evil. But basically, it just wants to say some things sometimes, and you just have to check it. You've got to check your selfishness. You've got to stop it. Okay? So, what motivates you? Everybody in here, just ask yourself that. What motivates you? What causes you to turn to the right or to the left? Is it your kids? Is it money? Is it your job? What is it that causes you to do everything that you do? You can probably, you know, trace it back to two or three things. It's probably not a whole lot of things. But I believe that what should guide you should not be these natural things, these day-to-day things that we go through. We should all be motivated by our love for God above all things. We should honor the sacrifice made by Jesus, our Savior, and the single greatest act of love ever, ever witnessed by man. He died for us. That wasn't selfish at all. So he died for us and he was resurrected three days later having defeated all the power of the devil. Why? Why did he do it? To set us free and give us eternal right standing with the Father. That's why he did it. He did it for us. He did an act of service for you that was beyond any act of service that you will ever be able to comprehend or repeat. That act of service is the act of service This should be our devotion. This should be our God. This truth is what we serve. We serve that truth. We serve that, not a man and not a woman. This truth and this truth alone. And it is by this truth that we will be able to persevere when we perform acts of service for others. If you focus on that, you won't be very easily stopped 
or slow down in your service towards others if you remember that. Okay? That was my introduction. And now a scripture. For all of you people who like scriptures, I'm one of them. Terry, Acts 6, chapter 2. So then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and they said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who may, we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And I look right now at our pastors, and I see something that I did not see when I started coming to church here 25 years ago, roughly 25 years ago. Our pastors have a body of believers here that enable them to do the things that they're doing like right now, to be able to leave and attend to something else and know that we are here doing what this verse says. We're taking care of the business of the church while they're not able to be here. That hasn't always been the case here. And I am very excited to see over the past few years how much more Pastor Cheryl's been able to devote herself to seeking God away from here, just able to keep herself and seeing Pastor able to do that. It's a tremendous thing because what this is talking about, what this verse is speaking about, is it's speaking about us. It's saying that they want to look out among us. It says seven, seek out seven people, but I mean, everyone here, the number seven is kind of irrelevant. Seek out among us who are honest, full of the Holy Ghost. Are we honest? I believe we are. I believe the majority of us in here are honest. Are we full of the Holy Ghost? I believe we are. I believe everybody in here is full of the Holy Ghost. Okay? So that they can appoint us over things so that they don't have to worry about them. Why? Because they're supposed to be doing other things, seeking God in prayer and ministering the Word. That's what they're supposed to be about. I started thinking about what are some examples of some people in the Bible that displayed the characteristics that are being talked about in Acts chapter 6. And the first one that comes to mind to me, obviously, is Elijah and Elisha, specifically Elisha and his service to Elijah. If you know anything about that, I don't know if everybody in here does, but Elisha followed Elijah and ministered unto him as basically a servant, if you want to use the term, as a servant, and met his needs daily. That's what he did. Now, what do we know Elisha to be? What is he? He's a prophet of God. He is a prophet. How many miracles did he do? Twice as many as Elijah, right? I think the Bible says it was exactly double. Okay? But he waited on that man for years. Eight years. The total time frame was eight years that Elisha followed Elijah and just ministered to him his needs. So, 1 Kings 19. Excellent. Thank you, Terry. You found that. So, 1 Kings. So he departed thence. And it's talking about Elijah. He departed thence and found Elisha the son of Shaphat. I don't know how you say that, but that's good enough. Who was plowing the twelve yoke of oxen before him, and with his with he was with the twelfth, and Elijah passed him and cast his mantle upon him. I want to stop at one thing first here and say, 
He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. What do we know about Elisha, not that he's a prophet, what do we know about him by the fact he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen? Hmm? He was wealthy. He was a rich man. His parents were rich. He was rich. It's one of the things people are after so much in life, but he was rich. He didn't have lack. He didn't need for things. If you're plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, you had it going on. So Elijah passed him and cast his mantle upon him. He cast his mantle upon him was a sign of he's also transferring something to him. He was transferring because God told him to. God told Elijah to find, seek out Elisha and cast his mantle upon him or to give him. That was going to be the transference of anointing. What Elijah had was going to be transferred to Elisha. Right then? Right there? No. There was work to be done. Elijah still had work to be done. And notice immediately, Elisha left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and he said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And Elijah said, Well, go back, for what have I done unto you? So he returned back. He took a yoke of oxen, one yoke. He killed them, boiled their flesh, and used the plow and everything else to actually boil the flesh. And he gave it to the people that were there. They ate. He kissed his mom and dad goodbye. And he left. And it says in verse 21, he arose and he went after Elijah and he did what? He ministered unto him. It didn't say he went out and started his prophet's ministry. It said he ministered unto Elijah. Right? So at that point, Elisha made a commitment. He walked away from a life of luxury. He walked away from money. He walked away from status. And he decided to become a servant unto someone. Uh, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 2. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah. So this is way on in the future, okay? Eight years have gone by. Elisha's been with Elijah the whole time. Now the Bible doesn't specifically say, and Elisha was there. You know, Elijah was sitting on the hill and the captain and his 50 men came up and said, the king said, come see him. And Elijah called down fire from heaven and smote them. The 51 men dead. It doesn't say Elisha was there, but all the other evidence says Elisha was there. Elijah probably wasn't a very easy man to be around. From all that I've read, and from what I've read about you know any kind of commentary on Elijah, he was not he was not um, a kind, gentle sort of man like me. It would be great to hang around someone like me, but to hang around that guy. That would have been a challenge because he was apparently very direct and hard, okay? But Elisha stuck to it. And Elijah says, it says here, The Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Wait here, tarry here, I pray thee. For the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, as the Lord liveth and as I so liveth, I will not leave you. I will not. So he's basically making a stand right there. I am not going to leave you. I'm your huckleberry. I am with you no matter what. I ain't staying here. Did he not? I will not leave you. So that they, they went down to Bethel. Elijah said, okay. So he went with them. And the sons of the prophets from Bethel came forth to Elisha. And they said to him, you know, that your Lord will be taken away or the Lord will take away thy master from thee 
or from thy head today? And he said, yeah, I know it. Shut up. He just said, hold your peace. And Elijah said to him again, Elisha, tarry here. I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, Elisha's response was, as the Lord lives and as our soul lives, I will not leave you. You know, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm with you, no matter what. So they came together to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha, and they said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? He answered, Yes, I know it. Shut up. You know, he's probably thinking, Why do people tell me this? Just stop. So then Elijah said to him, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And Elisha said, As the Lord lives and thy soul lives, I will not leave you. This man was committed. Nothing was going to make him walk away from the commitment that he had. Nothing. So they went on. They went on. Again, Elijah said, well, okay. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle, and he wrapped it together, and he smote the waters, and they divided hither and thither. He did a miracle. So that they went, the two went over to the other side on dry ground. And then right here, this next verse, verse 9. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Now, eight years, Elisha was in the service of Elijah saying, What can I do for you? What can I do for you? What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Right before he goes... Elijah turns around and says, what can I do for you? And then Elisha stepped on out there. Since, well, since you asked, how about this? I pray thee a double portion of your spirit upon me. How about that? And Elijah said, well, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, he still put a little criteria on here. It said, if you see me when I'm taken away from you, then you can have it. But if not, it won't happen. So Elisha's commitment to stick to it no matter what got him to that point, and he had to stick to it just a little bit more to get what he was after. This wasn't promised to him at the beginning. Never at the beginning did Elisha get a promise from Elijah that said, I will give you a double portion of anything. He wasn't paying him $5 a day plus per diem. There was nothing going on like that. There was a, you know what per diem is? It's money for food. Every day you get a little bit. Okay. Anyway, he wasn't guaranteed any of that kind of stuff. He was only guaranteed the opportunity to serve the prophet. That was it. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and they parted from um, them both for sunder, and Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. And guess what? Verse 12, and Elisha saw it. He said, if you were there and you saw it, you get it. Boom, he was there, he saw it, he got it. He got the double portion of the anointing. We know the end of that story. That's what happened. Elisha was not going to leave Elijah for any reason, but from the word, it is clear his motivation was not natural. Okay? He was never promised anything financially. He was simply allowed the opportunity to follow and minister to God's prophet. That was it. What was his motivation? Why did he do it? Elijah wasn't a particularly pleasant individual, which I mentioned, so why would he stay with him? 
He didn't know him personally before the initial encounter, so it wasn't like it was a friendship. There was nothing there to cause that to be the reason. They weren't related that we know of. So why? Because Elisha wasn't following the man. He wasn't following the man. Elisha's desire for the things of God that gave him strength to stand with Elijah for eight years. That's what gave him that ability. He never faltered that we know of. We don't know of any indication that Elisha ever stumbled in his commitment. So, what's another example in the Bible? That was just one. How about Ruth? Does everybody know the story of Ruth? Okay, Ruth was committed to serving Naomi. Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. Okay, Naomi had two sons, and therefore she had two daughter-in-laws. And the two sons and the father had all died, and Naomi told Ruth and her sister-in-law, who I don't recall the name of at the moment, told them both, you should go back to the land you came from. You shouldn't stay here and, and be with me. And Ruth said, I don't think so. She said that I will, I don't have the scriptures here for that, but she basically, hmm, well, how about that? She said, Ruth said, entreat me to leave thee or return from falling after thee, for whither thou goest, I will go. So what Ruth is saying here is, Wherever you're going, doesn't it sound a lot like what Elisha just said to Elijah? Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you sleep or stay, I'm going to stay there. I'm going to sleep there. Your people shall be my people. And the key there at the end, your God is going to be my God. She saw something in Naomi. She wanted that. Your God will be my God. See, Ruth was a Moabite woman. She didn't have any interest in going back to that. She had interest in staying connected with what she saw in Naomi. Do you know the end of the story for Ruth? Who did she marry? She married Boaz. And they had a kid. That kid's name was Obed. Who's Obed? The grandfather of David. So Ruth is in the direct line of Jesus because of this. Great reward can come to you in ways you don't expect when you honor others. All right. So let's move on over to the New Testament. Go to Acts 9.26, please. I want to talk about somebody who didn't quite, in my opinion, fulfill everything that was supposed to have occurred with them when it came to service. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed, which means he attempted, to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Now you realize Saul had been killing people left and right, and he was killing these people. Just previously, he was killing these people. But then after his conversion on the road to Damascus, after he met Jesus, he came, and he wanted to join himself with the disciples. They weren't going to have any of it, because they just all they saw was this guy kill people, However, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken unto him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was willing to stand for Saul and attest to the validity of his conversion and to the validity of his ministry. Barnabas went out on a limb and stood up for somebody who was a stone-cold killer just prior to this and said, No, he's one of us now. That's pretty strong. A lot of people pick on Peter because he denied Jesus. What about all the other stuff Peter did? It's pretty strong, wasn't it? 
The disciples at Jerusalem were scared of Paul. Barnabas went out on a limb for Saul. He saw beyond the man. He wasn't looking at Paul. He wasn't looking at him. He was looking at what he saw Paul was doing, what he saw in Paul. He saw God at work, but he saw him. And I should say Saul, because at this point in time he is Saul, but he saw God at work through him. And he was honoring God. He was not honoring Saul. There was nothing about Saul's previous life that was worthy of honor. He was honoring what he knew was in Saul now. He knew that Saul had something from God, and that's what he was doing. Therefore, he provided the service to Saul. The service was that he got him in the door with the disciples so that he could continue the ministry that God was setting him up in. Then tidings of these things. This is Acts 11.22. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was at Jerusalem. We skipped forward here. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and he had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of, the, of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man. Barnabas was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. So then Barnabas departs for Tarsus, looking for who? Saul. Okay? There's a connection between these two. Right? God has established a connection between them. And when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that for a whole year the two of them assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas are doing a work, and they're doing it together, which also they did, and this is verse 30, which also they did and sent it to the elder, elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The only reason I added that verse in there was, again, you see that people are using Barnabas and Saul as a team. Now, Acts 12, 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So someone else enters into this equation, who's John, whose surname is Mark. Keep going, Acts 13, verse 2. I'm basically just stepping through a progression of what's going on with Barnabas and Saul here. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. This is now the Holy Ghost saying, I am separating these two. They're to be together. Separate them unto me for this work. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. All right. I made a note here that said, Separate me, Pastor Philip Jackson, and Pastor Cheryl Jackson, and Pastor Jennifer Hogan, for the work whereunto I have called them. That has occurred here. They have been called by the Holy Ghost to do what they're doing. Okay? I just thought that that's a good tie-in right there. Now, the one thing that I was able to glean from what I was reading, too, and it says it specifically in the Word. That's why I was able to glean this. But it said that when these two guys were ministering together, when Paul and Barnabas were together somewhere ministering, who was the head minister? Paul was the head minister between the two of them. Barnabas was there as a help to Paul. I look back at, you know, the videos that we watch of when Kenneth Hagin is ministering to Pastor and Pastor Cheryl. And, you know, he's talking about how the, they're anointed and that Pastor Cheryl will have her part. And then Pastor, and I'm not saying there's a head minister here, but I'm just saying Pastor, you'll have to hold her hands up while she does this part. And the same thing is the other way. You know, she has to hold his hands up while he's doing his part. Each of them had something that they had to give to the other to help them accomplish whatever it was that they were supposed to be accomplishing. 
All right? Our pastors have the exact same thing. Acts 13, 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, whatever, and John, whose surname is Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. John, whose surname was Mark, left. Apparently, at the time, he didn't have what it took. You might just say, well, it just sounds like he might have gone home or something. Maybe he had to go something. No, if you keep going, that's not what happened. Acts 15, 36, And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. Well, guess what? Paul wasn't having any of that. That's what tells me that when Mark, John Mark departed, it wasn't because he just had something he had to go do right quick. He left them, hung out to dry. He didn't stick with them. But Paul, in verse 38, thought not good to take with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to their work. He said right there, he didn't go do the work with us. He didn't show up at the work day. He had something better to do. He had something else he had to go do. I just thought I'd interject that. All right? And the contention was so sharp between them, between Barnabas and Paul, they parted asunder one from another. They split up. And Barnabas took Mark with him. And Paul chose Silas and departed being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. Okay. Barnabas and Paul split over an argument about John. It doesn't say that the Holy Ghost said for them to go their separate ways, does it? They got into a fight and they split up. Jill and I had a discussion about this, about who was wrong. I can see someone taking both sides, you know, one side or the other. I go back to who was the main minister here? Paul. The Bible says he was. I believe Barnabas was wrong. Barnabas should have respected the opinion and the desire of the primary minister here. He was there, in my opinion, he was there for service to Paul. That's what was going on. Who was receiving the revelation of reconciliation of the body of Christ. Who was receiving that? Paul. What happened here is very sad for Barnabas, and I realize he probably went on and he ministered and did whatever, but Barnabas did not maintain his path. It said earlier that Paul was the chief speaker. I take that to mean he was the more knowledgeable. He was the more bold of the two. And it seems logical based on what we know of the entirety of Paul's ministry that's what was going on here, and that Barnabas messed up. If you believe otherwise, fine. But that's what I see happening here. He did not carry through like Elisha did. He did not follow through like Ruth did. Something happened, and he sided with, who decided? He sided with a man. Think about it. He lost the focus that he had initially of what's in Paul. The Word of God's in Paul. The Holy Ghost, is in, he lost sight of that, and he took on a fence of somebody else. Hey, Roy, where's Roy? How many people are on your list now? 300? Okay. Roy has a list of people like that. And in case you don't know, there's a list of people that have come and gone because something happened in this body of believers. They didn't, just didn't like They couldn't take it, so they left. And they would leave the call of God that's here and the ministry that's here because of an offense of something. 
I'm going to say this. This is is a true example. I've seen a man leave this church because his tie was insulted. Have you seen that before, Collier? Yes, you have. You're shaking your head. Yes. Seen a man leave this church because his tie was insulted. What kind of spiritual depth or connection do you have to this body of believers if that could pull you out of here? Think about it. What motivates you? Why are you here? I don't care if we did all show up in ripped jeans and a ripped shirt. I don't care. I'm still connected with you guys. It's not about what I'm wearing. A couple of weeks ago, Matt had a very excellent message. If you haven't listened to the podcast of Matt's message from two weeks ago, it's fantastic. Um, I mountain bike a lot, and those podcasts are amazing because that's what I do. I put in my ear plugs, headphones, and I turn on podcasts, and I now I have like What's he got, 30 of those things up? I don't know how many he's got, but I can just pick one and listen. And I know I'm hearing the truth, and that's what I do. I'll go ride for about an hour straight. That's usually about how long these podcasts are, and I'll pick one and I'll listen to it. I've listened to that one twice. I'll probably listen to it the next time I go. That's how good it is. He's talking about hunger. He's talking about hunger, and his message is kind of funny. When I was studying for this thing, it's like everything he was talking about two weeks ago, it was all over the top of what I'm doing right here. I mean, I was reading the same scriptures. I was had some of the same examples. I'm like, gracious, I wish I'd have done this first as opposed to him going before me. But the fact of the matter is he talked about, you know, people, the way they dress and certain things. People have ideas of what's right, what's wrong. It's, it's not about that. It's about what motivates you to be here. can't be about things like that. It's got to be about a hunger for things of God. If that's what your motivation is, you can insult me. I don't care. There's something bigger here than your insult. Right? There's something bigger here than that. I think of other people that have left. It's hard to fathom that someone could come in here and be healed of something extremely significant to them that was either death or meant they couldn't bear a child or anything like that, and they were literally healed here under the corporate anointing of this body and one little thing this one little thing that they didn't like happened and they thought that was enough to get them out from under what they got here i can't conceive i can't comprehend that i'm very analytical i have an engineering mind and i don't comprehend that level of thought. It doesn't occur to me. And Jill and I talked about this. And I was going down this path, probably erroneously so, but I was thinking about how people, when they are in service to other people, a lot of times they want something from it. I think the premise I had taken was, I was saying, it's pretty much always the case. They either want something, and if they can't get it, then they're not going to serve or whatever, and they or they get offended by things that were because they wanted status and all this other stuff. She said, no, you can't have somebody that just got offended with whatever was said right there in that moment, and it's just that big of a deal to them, hence the tie. And there wasn't really anything else going on with them that they were upset about, and they weren't trying to attain status, and they were okay being a little, you know, brush mouse over in the corner. Nobody see me. I don't. But you say that thing, and you realize, I'll say this, your eyes are not connected. They're not connected with what's going on here. And what has happened many times in the body of Christ here 
is you'll have people come in that never, never become part of you. They come here and they sit and they listen to a ministry every week. They'll come in for weeks at a time, months. We've seen people here be here for two or three years. But they never make any effort whatsoever to actually be one of you, to know who you are. They don't care who John is because they're coming in here. I'm here for the word. I'm here for the word. I'm here for the singing. I'm here for this. I'm here. I'm here because I love you. This body is the most important thing to me in my life, this group of people. That's why I'm here. Could I be offended one time by somebody and walk out of here? It's impossible. I don't think you can do it. I don't think if you're here for the right reason, when you come in the door, you're supposed to be bringing something with you. You're supposed to be bringing a supply of something with you. You're supposed to be encouraging others. When we go up on the platform every Sunday and we sing, we're supposed to have brought something with us. Do you bring something with you when you come here? Are you motivated to get out of bed, come to church on Sunday morning, Tuesday night, and bring something to give to somebody else? Not money, nothing physical, but to impart something to someone else. If you come here all the time and it's all about what am I getting today, those people leave. Because eventually they're not getting everything they want or there's just no connection between them and you. That's the person, you, can you help me do this on Friday? No, I'm kind of busy. You don't value that person's request because you don't really have value for that person. Does that make sense? There's, there's a lot more to us as a body than just showing up in this building on Sunday and Tuesday. I think about you people constantly. Is that normal? I think it is. I think it's normal for us, for who we are. I went to a Presbyterian church. Did I think about those people outside of that church? No. I didn't want to think about them while I was there. I didn't want to be there because it was, there was nothing there for me. It was, um, it was, there just was nothing. The power of God was not there. His manifestation was not there in any way. So here, when I came here for the first time, 1994, I noticed the difference. Were there people here that weren't connected? Absolutely, there were. Did they put on a good show anyway? They sure did. They made you think they were, but they weren't. They're not here anymore. This place has been called down to some people that really, really love each other. And that's the fact of the matter. Right now, this group of people are people who want what's best for the other person, the person in the seat beside them, and they'll do anything to make sure they get it. That's service. Right, Mavis? Okay, just checking. I just want to make sure that you weren't upset with anything I was saying right now because you have this look on your face that says you might be upset. <clears throat> right. I was involved in a church speaking of that I was involved in a church split and I, I looked at this when I saw it I'm like that's a church split Barnabas and Paul what happened to them that's a split church y'all know what a split church is or a church split is have any of you ever been through one it's nasty what happens it's terrible and that Presbyterian church I was talking to you about that's what happened and you know what? This actually occurred to me. You know why that happened? The church split at the church that I was in back when I was, a, I was probably 12 when it happened. It happened because the pastor felt like he didn't have any help. We're talking about right now helps. We're what we're really talking about here is your service to the body of Christ 
you helping others, you helping your pastors. That pastor wrote a memo, gave it to the deacons, all the elders of the church, said, I need this, and y'all won't let me have it. I need help. And there was a part in there about they were being led by the devil. Um, which you know what they were. They were being led by the devil because they were so tight-handed with the money, they were trying to rule and reign over this pastor who was the best thing that really ever happened to that church, and they wouldn't give him the help that he needed. And lo and forget having them come do anything, clean a bathroom, you know, rake a lawn, do anything like that. Forget that. We'll do that once every six months. We'll clean the grounds up. We'll do it on a Saturday morning. We're done. They were being led by the devil. He called them on it. Presbyterian pastor. Well, guess what happened? They kicked him out. They kicked him out. Eventually. But that caused the church to split. And what happened is half the congregation, and it was literally half the congregation, they left. The very next Sunday, they were gone. Church split. That's what happened right here. Paul and Barnabas had a contention over something. And Paul said, that guy's not going to be what we need right now. Really? Well, he's what I need. Church split. Okay? It would be silly to deny that Barnabas loved God. They would. Or that he was devoted, or that he was a devoted servant of God, because he was. But he let his affection for a man cause him to be separated from Paul. And Paul was God's man at the time. Can't let that happen. You can't let yourself get separated from God's man. Our pastors, politically correct or not, our pastors are God's man right now. I believe that right now in the body of Christ, I don't think there's any better place. I don't think there's anywhere you can go and get better word than what you get right here. Nowhere, uh, nowhere in this world. And a lot of people, oh, you just say that because you go to church there. I've heard this. You, if you act like there's no word being preached anywhere else and that everywhere else is just teaching lies, I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I know that our pastors are telling us the uncompromised truth of the word of God and the ministry gifts are in full flow and operation here. The Holy Ghost is allowed to operate. And I yet have not seen another church where that too is manifesting and something kooky wasn't also going on. Okay? By kooky, I just mean something's, something's messed up in the doctrine with what they're saying. You're sitting under a prophet's anointing here, whether you know it or not. Are we not, Carter? Are we sitting under a prophet's anointing right here? We are. You don't want to get out from under that. That's a big deal. I look back to when we had some meetings here a while back, years ago, and quite honestly, it's as simple as this. There's a lot of national ministers right now that have need to sit under the leadership and guidance of our pastors. But they won't do it. They don't honor God in them like they should. And it's caused shipwreck to occur and if it ain't shipwreck yet it's i mean it, it is shipwreck because it's it's not where it was supposed to be it's not where it should have been these people aren't where they are they ought to be any any longer the bible never says that barnabas and paul come together again ever but that paul moves on with silas and timothy we know that paul came to rely heavily on timothy timothy was there in his future ministry he was there at corinth you know timothy shows up silas shows up paul could count on him Interestingly enough, who showed up later? John, whose surname was Mark, all of a sudden, boop, pops back up and Paul says, hey, 
Timothy, you should take John with you because he is profitable. What happened to John, whose surname was Mark? He grew up. That's right. He figured out something. He became profitable. And Paul actually recommended him to, some, to help serve someone who was serving him. So, not all is lost in situations like that. It's, just, it's a matter of someone getting revelation, getting some truth. I was going to talk a little bit about Timothy also. This comes down to respect for me. It comes down to respect and honor for what we have here, for what God has shown us, what he's given us. And, you know, Timothy was an example of this. Paul wrote Timothy two letters, and in each one of them, the first one, he starts it out. He says, unto Timothy my own, this is verse chapter 1, uh, verse 2 of 1 Timothy. And he says, unto Timothy my son in the faith. He called him his child. That's, that's a big deal. You heard Pastor and Cheryl and Pastor call you their son or their daughter. You realize what they're saying? How much they love you? What level of respect and honor they're bestowing upon you when they say that? That's a huge deal. He goes on in that same chapter. He says, you know, holding the faith and of a good conscience, this is verse 19, which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. I just mentioned that shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they <laughs> may learn not to blaspheme. So these were guys that might have been getting it right for some period of time, but all of a sudden they got shipwrecked. I was just talking about people getting shipwrecked by pulling themselves out from under an anointing for some silly little offense. You go to chapter 2, um, or not chapter 2, but Second Timothy, and Paul's salutation to him is, To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Some time has passed. I, I like to look at this and say, he got even more affectionate towards Timothy. He went from being my son in the faith to my dearly beloved son. I think Timothy was showing himself strong in Paul's ministry by being all that he needed him to be. And I believe that was an increase right there, calling his dearly beloved son, not just his son in the faith. Our pastors thank God for us. I know it. If you go to verse 4, you can see Paul says, I greatly desire to see thee being mindful of thy tears that I might be filled with joy. Paul was happy to see him. That's what I want. I want for you guys to be happy to see me. I want to be happy to see you. Right? I'm going to tell you right now, when I came in, I was on the platform singing. I don't know if he knows this or not. Kirk came in, he's smiling at me. And I was just like, that's all I could do to not smile to him. He's he just like, it's like a breath of fresh air and joy. I was standing there staring at him on the platform. Could you tell I was staring at you a little bit? I want to be happy to see you. I want to feel like, I want to have relationships with people here where I, will, I want to do things for you. I want it to be easy for me to do things for you. And part of that's on you. It really is. You have to make an effort too. It can't be just me. That's kind of funny coming from me, isn't it? I just realized what I just said. <laughs> that's actually funny. You see, about two years ago, I had to get up here and apologize to everybody for being such a 
hard case and not being happy around people, okay? That's why I say this this way. It is kind of, I literally stood here in this pulpit, if y'all remember, if you were here, I apologize to you folks because I was that guy that y'all might have, I wasn't always as happy and outgoing as I am right now. Y'all probably, <laughs> you guys probably thought there was something wrong with me. It wasn't, there wasn't something, well, there was something wrong with me. I just wasn't open to people. I've worked on it. Can you tell? I feel like I'm better now. Well, it's because of people like Kirk coming here. Seriously, it is. The more people I get to know in a more in-depth way, the more I like about them. Right? And that's something I never... I'll go ahead and tell this story. Why not? Aaron Hester, back when... He and Ginger were dating, I guess. They were all just dating at the time, right? And Ginger came to my wife and said, well, we, we were married. I want you to go out with me. And were you all engaged? I don't think you were. Anyway, I want, you to go out with, I want you guys to go out with me and my boyfriend. Let's just say that. And I'm, Jill comes back to me and tells me, I'm like, no, I do not want to do that. I, did I not? Did I? I do not want to do that. I don't know this guy, and I don't want to know him. <laughs> See, you got to understand, that's, that was who I was. I had time for two or three people in this church, and that was her, her parents, because I had to. <laughs> John, I actually liked John. He was one of the few people here that I actually cared to hang around, okay? But she came to me and said, you know, Ginger wants us to go to the melting pot. That was another thing. I didn't want to go there either. I do not like fondue. <laughs> so I, w- I, I probably showed my tail about it. I didn't want to do it, but I went anyway, and I met Aaron. I liked him. Shock. He's one of the best friends I have now. He's one of the people I call and talk to stuff about. So are you that guy? Are you, are you the one that you know, holds everybody at arm's distance and doesn't get to know anybody? It's detrimental to your relationship to the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ here. And unless you can, you know, break down the barrier of you and let yourself be open to some other people. You know, I think Seth struggled with this for a while. Where's Seth at? I just wanted you to know you can't hide back there. I don't know how many people have noticed the difference in Seth in the past two or three years. Good. Night, it is different. It's stark. And he probably doesn't realize it's as stark as it is, um, but it is. The difference in him is very significant. And it's very much appreciated. It is. Because I like you. Your personality, I like. I get along with well. But you don't want to get along with anybody. At least three years ago, you didn't. You know what I'm saying? What you've done, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here trying to slam that. I'm just saying he's made an effort to do exactly what I made an effort to do. I think he sees the value in this, this body. There's nothing more important than this body. There's nothing more important than your service to this body. Your service could be as easy as talking to somebody when they've got something going on in their life. You know, be an ear for someone to talk into and listen. Not judgmentally, 
If they ask you for advice, that's fine. You can give them some advice. But people have need of godly, spirit-filled friends to help them. I'll give you an example. Back when I was uh, at Clemson, I went through the worst time of my life. Okay? Just call it that. It's the worst time of my life. And uh, I had a friend. His name's John Nickel. John, I met in the ninth grade. We were sitting in my homeroom class, and John was in my homeroom. And dude was tall. He was our starting center on our basketball team as a freshman in high school. He was very tall. And he was sitting there, had his little red skin. I remember this like it was yesterday. He had his red skin. Do you remember those half-moon-shaped book bags? Had the two handles on top, the two hard handles. He had a Washington Redskins when he sat there. And I just, I don't know how we struck up a conversation. We just started talking one day. I'd never met him. He went to a different middle school than me. But we both attended Sun Valley High School. So that's where we met, ninth grade homeroom. And we became friends. Really, really good friends. We hung out together all the time. If we weren't going to school, we were figuring out where the two of us could go do something. Okay? He's the best friend that I ever had. I'd never had a friend like that. But from ninth grade all the way through high school, we were inseparable except for when he was playing ball because I didn't play basketball. And when it came time to go to college, we both went to UNC Charlotte. He had scholarships to go to other schools to play basketball. He didn't want any of that. He, he went with me to UNC Charlotte, <laughs> paid full price. So we signed up and made sure we got the same room. We, you know, we roomed together five more years. So John and I were like inseparable for nine years. And about the eighth year of that, John had something happen in his life, and it wasn't good. You know, his dad had died when he was like 12. About our uh, fourth year, because we both took five years to get our degree. That's what happens when you take engineering at UNC Charlotte. Um, anyway, about the fourth year, something very negative happened to him. And John had gone to a Methodist church his entire life. And when that situation happened with him, I'm not going to lay the situation what it was, kind of irrelevant, but it was bad. And um, I noticed that when that situation occurred, right afterwards, John's way out of it, the way that he came out, because he went into a kind of a depression, he was really upset. The way he came out of it, I started noticing when I'd walk by his bedroom, because we roomed together, we rented a house um, our last year there. And when I walked by his bedroom, every single time I walked by his bedroom, he was sitting in a chair reading this every time. He could not absorb it fast enough. He got filled with the Holy Ghost. I remember sitting in our living room and having a conversation. Do you guys remember a guy that came here named Paul? Paul came here. He's the one that invited me to come here 20-some-odd years ago. And unfortunately, Paul left because he got offended. But... The fact is he invited me to come here. Paul and John and myself roomed in that house together with some other guys. I remember sitting on the sofa in the living room, and Paul and John were having a conversation, and they were talking about praying in tongues. And I was not yet saved. Did I believe in Jesus? Yes, I did. Did I believe that Jesus, uh, everything in the Bible, did I believe it was true? Yes, I did. Was I saved? No, I was not. Both those guys were. And John and Paul, John was spun around in his recliner 
looked at Paul and said, Paul, you believe praying in tongues is real? And Paul said, I sure do. I do it. John was like, all right. And they looked at me and said, what do you think? I said, no, I don't. I remember. I mean, it was, I was unlearned. I just like, no, it's not real. I, whatever. And I got them left. Not because I was offended. I just like, I don't have anything to offer that conversation. I don't really want to sit here for it. But John got filled with the Holy Ghost. And uh, his life changed. He became a different person. He still loved me, though. So fast forward. I'm down at Clemson two, maybe yeah, two years later. And uh, I'm going through the worst time of my life. There, I said all that to hear. I was going through the worst time of my life. And uh, it was bad. Okay? It was bad. And I'm sitting there in my office one day. I, and I hadn't probably talked to John in a year. And I'm sitting in my office. I was a grad student, so I had my own office that I would sit in. I was in a cluster of offices, but I was sitting there one day working, and uh, John walked in. I'm like, what? You know, this big guy comes walking into my office, and as John, he had to drive three hours just to get there. He'd have to drive three hours to get back. He didn't call me. He didn't tell me he was coming. He just showed up, and he sat down beside my desk. I never moved. I just sat there. I looked over at him. He just started talking. He sat there for about... 15 minutes, talked a little bit about God, asked me how I was. And when he got done, he stood up and he said, well, it's about time I get back. I'm like, okay. So he left. Hang on a minute. He drove six hours to come see me for 15 minutes. Excuse me. I texted him recently. And I asked him why I did it. And he just said, because you were hurting. Ooh, I composed myself in a minute. Do you care for people here like that? So he said, he believes that was right about the same time I got filled with the Holy Ghost. And he was right. Because I was alone down there, and I had people who would minister to me. I had great friends. <laughs> I don't know how I did it, but every friend I had was saved, filled with the Holy Ghost. Or, and I wasn't, and, but I, I had aligned myself with all these people who were. And... Everywhere I went, none of them wanted to hear anything about my side of anything. All they kept telling me was, here's what you need. And they kept talking about this, telling me that's what I needed. He was one of them. Paul was one. Uh, a guy named Paul Gurley, who was a great friend I had down in Clemson. He was another one. It's just amazing how God was able to operate through those guys. But John, that was impactful. To know somebody cared that much and would do that for me. Nine years. And I asked him, why did you do that? He said he knew I was hurting. And he wanted to know if he could support me. That's the word he used. If there's anything he could do to support me. That was it. And he did. He did what he needed to do.
later on, probably, I don't know, Jill and I were married, and John got married. What year was that? He got married. So Jill was pregnant with Anna the year he got married. And John called me. He was dating a girl in Arkansas. He called me, and he said, listen, we're getting married in Little Rock because that's where her family was. And the only family he had here was his mom and his sister. So it was just way easier for the family here to go there. And he called me and he said, I apologize for not asking you before, right now. And the reason he apologized was because he'd asked some other guy to be his best man. And that guy said, I'm not going out there. I can't do that. And John said, the reason I didn't ask you is I did not, because Jill was pregnant. He knew this stuff. He says, I did not want to inconvenience you. And he said, but would you be my best man? <laughs> like, are you kidding? So we packed up the Mercury Villager, my parents, my wife, pregnant, me, my granny, who was probably 80-something at the time. We looked like the Beverly Hillbillies, I'm sure, in that little van, and we drove to Arkansas to Little Rock because I honored that man. And God in him, that was a little thing to do for everything that he was to me. Do you have relationships here like that? Was anybody here? Is there anybody here that you would do that for? There should be. There should be people here that you care that much about. You should care about most everybody here like that. To serve, back to the definition, to be a servant, to be of use, to be worthy, of reliance or trust. The point I've tried to make here this morning is simply this, is we are the body of Christ. We are a family here. And this bond should be stronger than any bond you've ever had with anybody in your life. Now I realize you have a mom and a dad, a natural mom and dad, and I realize that that bond is strong, and it should be. But save my family right here, that's sitting right here, there's no relationships, none. And I'm talking about family members too, that I value more than what I value these relationships that I have with some of these people here. I say some because, you know, a lot of us, we don't fellowship. We should, but we don't. I've got great friends here. And I can tell you right now, my best friends in the world, I don't mind naming. I don't mind telling you who my best friends in this world are. Right now, it's because, and it's because they've made an effort, an investment in me. But Collier, Michael, Aaron, John, Nickel, always. Never go away. Matt has made an investment in me and my family. It's just with his time. It's not money. It's they care. That's what it's about. And I see a lot of other people that I want to have those kinds of relationships. You know, just people that I want to know I can count on or I want them to know they can count on me. But that's only going to happen when I do something or when they do something. Or we do something together. All right? I love y'all. I hope this made an impact somehow on you. Somehow that you get something from that that maybe, hey, I can do something different and things can change.